Hi, and welcome to another talk from our series of talks on the letter to Titus. And this is the um, second to last one, just one more to come. Um, but the, the three verses that we're looking at this week are probably not, um, probably not a passage that we would normally choose to spend a lot of time on, not unless we really felt that we needed to. But that is one of the benefits of working our way sequentially through uh, a letter or a part of the Bible, it does encourage us to spend some time looking at things we might otherwise avoid and therefore possibly miss out things, miss out on things which we, which we, um, which are beneficial for us to know. So we'll be looking in uh, Titus chapter 3 and we're going to be reading from verse 9. But before we do that, I'd like to just say um, a little bit about the Apostle Paul. Um, because Paul was a man who, who loved an argument, apparently. In Acts 19, it says that he argued persuasively in the synagogues. In Acts 9, it says he debated boldly. And in Acts 17, we learn that such arguments and debates were his custom, his, his regular practice. And we also know that what he said often stirred up further arguments and disputes, like in Acts 23, when his teaching divided the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in Acts 28, where it says simply that some were convinced by what he'd said, and some were not. So how is it that in today's passage, that Paul is telling Titus to avoid arguments and quarrels about the scriptures. Let's find out. So we'll start our reading from verse 9 of chapter 3. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time, after that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful, they are self-condemned. So, how are we going to get something edifying or helpful out of that? You know, sometimes people look to the scriptures, and maybe we've all done it, looking for simple answers to the issues of life, things like career choices, where to live, the wise use of money, relationships, how to bring up children, how much to be involved in our communities and the issues of this world, and so on. And it's often been the case that people have found what they've been looking for. A single verse, perhaps, which tells them, at least it seems that way, exactly what to do. Some might go further and use such scriptures to tell other people exactly what they should be doing. And of course there are scriptures which do give us very clear instruction. In Acts 16, when the jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Their response was clear and definitive, wasn't it? And um, instruction that we absolutely can apply in our, in our, in our times today. Uh, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Absolutely clear. But most of the Bible is not so prescriptive. 
we have to use our judgment to determine if we're being given, say, an example to follow, or not follow perhaps, an instruction, or just an encouragement, a prohibition, or just something to be careful about. And it's often the case, even when we've interpreted what the scriptures are saying correctly, it can be much harder to know how to put it into practice in everyday life. But I, for me, there are four guiding principles which can help us to do that. And I think they're also applicable to the challenges that Paul was writing about in our passage. Firstly, we have our love for the Lord and wanting to do what we think he wants. You'll recognise that as the first and greatest commandment as Jesus described it. It's something we'll never achieve perfectly, but the more we get to know the Lord, the more able we'll be at answering that key question in every situation. What would Jesus do? Secondly, we have our love for other people, which, again, you'll recognise as the second greatest commandment, closely tied to the first, Jesus said. And if our love is anything like the love of God, it will affect how we interact with other people. And if we think the scriptures are t telling us, directing us to behave in a way which is unloving, then maybe we need to think again. Thirdly, I suggest we always need an abundance of care. We know how easy it is to misinterpret the scriptures. We know that we don't always make the right decisions in our daily lives. Perhaps on occasions you, like me, have actually made a bad situation even worse. We make assumptions. We have bias. We can be misinformed. And we can be blinded to the truth or the wrongfulness of our, of our actions. I liked the example that we were given last week about the health workers that um, our brother David saw smoking outside the hospital of all the people who should have known better. And yet somehow they were blinded, um, numb to, the, um, to what they were doing and how wrong it was and how, how wrong it looked. So this principle is simply about taking enough time when we make important decisions more when the situation is complex or the consequences of making the wrong decision are greater. And my fourth principle is the one that Paul highlights very clearly in the passage. It's trying to determine in any situation what's more important. Or as Paul puts it, we need to judge between what's excellent and profitable for everyone that's verse 8 from the passage we looked at last week, and what might be unprofitable and useless. Verse 9 that we've just read. Now that was quite a long introduction, I know, but the points I want to make about our short passage are quite simple and straightforward. It's what we do with them which is more challenging. How do we determine what's uh, profitable or not? How do we judge between two things which are both profitable? Or in some situations, how do we choose the lesser of two evils, so to speak? And when does a different point of view, whether it be about doctrine or, or um, 
church practice or about people in the church, when does it become divisive? What makes a divisive person? Let's look at what Paul was actually saying. We'll start with the apparent contradiction that I um, hinted at at the beginning. Paul tells Titus to avoid certain types of arguments and quarrels about the scriptures. Or uh, the law, as he says in verse 8, but he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. And yet it seems that Paul himself was often engaged in those kinds of debates. And not only Paul, in Acts 6 we read about Stephen who argued with the Jews, it says. And in Acts 18 we read that Apollos vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate. And even the Lord Jesus it says in Mark 12 that he was found debating with the Sadducees about the resurrection. So it's clear that when it comes to the Great Commission, sharing the gospel with others, it's inevitable that differences in beliefs and opinions will lead to some form of debate if we stand up for what we believe in. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, the nature of the gospel is not to bring peace to all people. It is divisive. Even within families where loyalties are often the strongest, the different responses to the gospel can set one person against another, he said. The potential for all kinds of arguments. Now, I'm not going to... Um, split hairs about definitions we might naturally think of an argument as something more heated than a debate but I've heard some pretty heated debates over the years so it's actually the the character of any conversation or discussion or debate it's the character of that interaction which is the thing which really matters as I said before, we, we read that Apollos vigorously refuted his opponents and that Paul was someone who argued persuasively and spoke boldly in debate. But it also says that he reasoned with the Jews from the scriptures. And when he did that, he was explaining and proving things to them, it says. And that doesn't really sound like the kind of heated argument you get when people start to lose their temper, does it? I think the important thing to remember, if we ever end up debating with someone who has different beliefs or opinions to our own, is the advice of 1 Peter 3. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And that's consistent with the approach that Paul is encouraging throughout this letter to Titus. We do need to live out the values we say we believe in, which means we should be seen to be different in all sorts of ways, not, not different for the sake of being different, but different in everything that matters. But we still need to behave in such a way that wins the respect of unbelievers and makes the Christian lifestyle attractive. 
And that includes how we share our beliefs with people who might be sceptical or even hostile to Christian teaching. And none of that really has much to do with what Paul is talking to Titus about here. Uh, the principles carry forward, um, or I wouldn't have said it. Um, but the thing is, here, the divisive people that Paul was writing about and the arguments they were causing were not with outsiders. They were with people who were already in the church. Paul probably had the same people in mind as he referred to uh, back in chapter 1. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 10, we read um, that there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. He goes on to say, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. So here's a challenge that I mentioned at the beginning. It's clear that Paul is telling us to avoid getting into useless arguments, but he's also saying that false teachers must be silenced and rebuked, that divisive people must be warned. I can't imagine that happening without some sort of argument. But if some debates are helpful, when does an argument become unprofitable or useless? And when does a person with contrary views, as I said before, become a divisive person? Maybe we don't need a precise answer to these questions. Because actually we know it when we see it, don't we? Or if you've never seen it before, we can be fairly confident that we would know it when we saw it. Because, firstly, the people that Paul had in mind, he described as rebellious and deceiving. People like that are completely out of kilter with the character and behaviours of the true followers of the Lord Jesus. Secondly, their arguments are described as foolish. We don't know what they were exactly, but um, from what we have um, read, it's quite likely that when they referred to genealogies, they were trying to claim merit based on their family background or status in society. Uh, their arguments about the law were probably trying to persuade the church that they still needed to keep the Jewish law and traditions. Um, that was a, a common argument going around in the early church. If someone today was to start arguing for things like that, or anything else which was completely contrary to what we now understand of the Gospel, we would know it, wouldn't we? Thirdly, there was an immediate result of these arguments, and it was quarrel. And whatever hard or soft definitions we might give to the word argument, we can be clearer about the meaning of the word quarrel, can't we? If you look that up in the dictionary, you'll see it means things like strife and controversy and conflict. 
This was the kind of argument where everyone goes away, upset or angry. And fourthly, there were longer term impacts of these arguments that also must have been um, very evident. Uh, we read that whole households were being disrupted and deceived and therefore potentially the whole church. So this is a, a different situation to some saints having a few different views on doctrine or church practice. Views that they either hold privately or maybe only ever share very gently and respectfully. Here we have people who are deliberately disrupting the unity of the church, causing divisions and undermining the testimony of the church to outsiders. Everything that Paul had said that they needed to be working hard at if they wanted to be effective in outreach. And it's more than just the effectiveness of outreach. As Jesus said in Matthew 12, a kingdom divided against itself will fall. The risk here is that these arguments, if they weren't stopped, they could blow up the whole church, kill it off for good. And not just one church of God, they could spread to others with the same effect. So what were they to do to avoid all this? We have three things in the passage. Firstly, they were to avoid the arguments and controversies. That's good general advice to the church, isn't it? But avoiding argumentative people isn't called for in itself. The first advice is just to avoid the arguments. In other words, avoid getting drawn into them. If someone starts one, you just walk away. Immediately, because we all know what happens if you stay just long enough to make one last point. If the other person doesn't want you to have the last word. Secondly, the instruction to warn a divisive person, I think that is mainly just for Titus and the other elders, but when should it happen? Well, um, sometimes, um, as I've already suggested, it's obvious when um, something needs to be done, when an intervention is necessary. And, and ideally, we wouldn't want elders to wait until the damage had already been done. But um, like I've said, some decisions require very careful judgment and our elders really do need our prayers um, in the difficult decisions um, and issues that they have to, um, they have to deal with. The third point were subsequent, um, was about subsequent warnings. But how many warnings were they to be given? I think it's a strange one, this, the thought of a, a strict limit. But I think that what Paul is saying is that normally two warnings for someone who is unintentionally causing divisions should be um, enough. And... And by unintentionally, what I mean by that is that there might be someone who is intentionally trying to persuade people round to their point of view and they might be going about it in, in um, quite forceful ways, but they haven't realised the damage that they are doing to the church. So someone who is unintentionally causing divisions and for such a person... Two warnings should be enough to 
redirect them. Um, but the goal is, is not just to save the church, is it? If possible, it is to save every individual who is part of the church, whatever their behaviour has been, to encourage them to stop being divisive and to be sound in faith, the phrase that we read from chapter 1. But what Paul is saying is that if it's clear that person has no intention of stopping their divisive behaviour, that their mind is warped, as it says in verse 11, then the advice was to have nothing to do with that person. You notice that it doesn't say expel them from the church. I'm not sure if that should be inferred from these instructions, but perhaps the difference here from the earlier advice to just avoid getting drawn into arguments is that now Paul is saying if someone insists on turning every conversation into an argument if they are being clearly divisive and won't change their ways then there does come a time when beyond the basic pleasantries which we still continue um, beyond them we should avoid even getting into conversation with that person unless and until they do change their ways. So then, where is the relevance in all of this for us today? If Paul was writing to our church here in Manchester, would he be giving the same instructions, the same warnings about divisions and divisive people? I don't think so, but maybe there is. There are people listening to this recording now, maybe you're listening to this recording and thinking that, yeah, this, this is absolutely true of my church. But I think that even if, <coughs> excuse me, even if we um, can't see an immediate application of precisely what Paul is talking about, I think there are some things, some thoughts that we can we can take from this letter, we can be prompted by this the, the, these instructions um, that maybe we can apply ourselves in our day-to-day -day lives. Firstly, although the villains in this letter seem to be people who are um, especially and del deliberately divisive, we should remind ourselves that we all have the potential to argue and be divisive. Paul's actually an example of that himself. In Acts 15, it says that he had such a sharp disagreement with Barnabas that they couldn't work together anymore. They parted company. It was a, a divisive argument. So we just need to be careful that we don't allow any disagreements that we might have with anybody else in the church to grow uh, into something bigger. Secondly, in the context of Paul's focus throughout this letter on how our actions affect the reputation of the church, we should be aware that any hint of division, which is even sensed by those we reach out to, the people who might come into our church services and other events, if they even sense there is some division among us, well, that could undermine the testimony of the church, couldn't it? It undermines the attractiveness of the gospel. People don't need to witness a full-blown argument. They just need to hear us um, talk maybe um, negatively about other people. 
uh, in the church or or, um, or 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 gripe about the way the church does things or, or anything like that i'm sure we don't normally do that but we know that the adversary will of course exploit every weakness in our old nature so we just need to be aware and careful and my third point um, is that we should just know that debates and arguments even the well-mannered ones take time and energy so if a debate is worth having or if a point is worth raising which might lead to a debate we should always be clear on its purpose is it is it worth it is it is it profitable does it matter and with that let me just finish by reminding us of those two options that paul um that paul gives us in this letter for how we should live the whole of our christian lives we can either devote ourselves to doing what is good things which are excellent and profitable for everyone verse 8 or we can allow ourselves to be drawn into things which are, as verse 9 says, unprofitable and useless. I know which one I'd rather people um, said about me when I'm gone. So I'll leave it there. As I say, we have one more talk in our um, series on Titus and then we'll be moving on for um, to a study on the um, the Beatitudes. So we're uh, looking forward to that. Thanks for listening. <laughs>